Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Uh, welcome to Sleep Well Tips for Better Sleep for Healthcare Professionals. Without further ado, uh, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Jack, the Executive Director of American Physician Institute, and he is going to go ahead and introduce our guest of honor this evening. So take away, Dr. Jack. All right. Thank you, Jeff, and welcome, everyone. And it's my pleasure and honor to be able to introduce our speaker tonight. And his name is Raj, Force of Nature Das Gupta. So, Raj, that is my official, it's my official nickname for you. So, Raj, thank you very much, man. And over to you, Raj. All right. Thanks, Jack. And you are the best. You've always said awesome things about me, supported me. So um, for everyone else, it's great being here. This is kind of like my first sleep big lecture for 2023. So I'm definitely excited to be here and to start the new year off well. And I hope all you folks are having a good New Year's also. So like the title says, I want to give you some tips, some awesome tips for getting some better sleep, you know, and this lecture is kind of like a modified lecture of what I did previously, almost like last year. And, you know, after I gave that lecture, I got so many questions like, what about this? And what about that? Because I kind of just skimmed the surface. So I'm going to do kind of like a deeper dive into this year, especially, you know, when we're promoting this, I said, drugs and devices. And that's kind of scary that you know, I mean, we're using devices for sleep. Oh, my God. You know, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because, you know, the, the landscape is changing and there are FDA approved devices for certain sleep disorders. So I thought that'd be kind of interesting. I always like talking about sleep hacks and I thought it'd be kind of cool because there are things that we just want to steer clear of, you know, and things that may have some truth behind it. So we're going to talk about some of my favorite sleep hacks and I stole that word hacks. My, my nine-year-old girl, that's like the cool word to use at school right now, the hacks. So I'm trying to trying to be cool and incorporate that in a bunch of my talks. So let's do a little introduction to sleep. And then from there, we'll talk about what a lot of people are unfortunately going through, which is sleep deprivation. And we'll end up with these cool updates. So 
Sleep. Well, you know, it's always good to have a starting point with every lecture. And I think when I start talking about sleep, the starting point is going to be, well, what is the the worst moment of the day for most people? I think it's going to be the morning where you kind of have that alarm clock, you know, and I know many of you are like, I don't own these old school digital alarm clocks with little bells on the top. I know what your alarm clock is. It's right here, right? It's your phone, you know, which could be the main problem right off the bat, which is Putting technology in bed, that's not the way to go. But, you know, you hear that noise, that buzzard. And of course, that noise is kind of like the return from this mysterious world that we call sleep. And sleep is such a huge part of our lives. And I know that just thinking of numbers, we sleep a third of our lives. And most people are just are not even shocked when I say a third of my life unless I do the numbers, right? So let's say we all live to a wonderful 90 years of age without dementia, of course, you know? And um, what's a third of 90 in the math? That's kind of like 30 years. So you spend 30 years of your life sleeping. That's huge. So it plays. So it's something that what happens during the day is definitely affected by what happens at night. And we have 30 years of sleeping. We need to figure stuff out. And we're doing a better job at it. We're learning more about sleep, the purpose behind sleep, you know. Um, but, you know, in the morning when someone asks you, how was your sleep? Most of us kind of always respond by and, well, I had a good dream. Well, I had a dream. And then even though you thought you dreamt the whole night, when the follow-up question is, well, what did you uh, dream about? Don't you kind of summarize it all in like, like one sentence, yet you had this long dream the entire life? So, of course, you know, I mean, it just tells you how much more we need to learn, not only about sleep, but even things like about dreams. So when we talk about why do we need sleep, by far, it's more than just hitting the reset button, even though that's what we need to do. Like, wow, I need to reset the, you know, things, but it's more than just that. And I needless to say that sleep affects every single organ in the body. It's the most important behavior that we do as humans that animals do. And I wanted to kind of give a little insight to, well, how do we fall asleep? You know? So how do we fall asleep is all about two forces. And these two forces have to be aligned to make you sleepy at night. So what are these two forces? Well, you see right here, the first one's called the homeostatic drive, big doctor word right there. That's your sleep need. So what does it translate into is the more that you stay awake during the day, the more you want to sleep at night. And you notice underneath it, I put the word adenosine. So that really uh, is going to be what is uh, driving the homeostatic drive. So adenosine builds up during the day. Why? Is because when you're awake and you're exercising and thinking and socializing, well, every cell in your body needs food. And what is the food for each cell in your body? It's ATB, adenosine triphosphate. And how do you get the energy is you're cleaving off these phosphates. And as you're doing that, eventually by the end of the day, you're just left with a lot of A. And what does that A stand for? adenosine. So your adenosine is just building up. So of course, as it's building up, that's what's really making you feel sleepy. So at nighttime, you have high levels of adenosine. So let me give you one of like Dr. Raj's favorite pearls. You know what inhibits adenosine is caffeine. And people always wonder, how does caffeine work? How does caffeine keep you alert? You know, why am I drinking this cup of coffee in the morning? So that's its mechanism of action. It inhibits adenosine. So, you know what you can do with this pearl? You know, in the morning when, uh, you know, you go to the, the coffee zone at your work and you see someone kind of yawning, you could be like, wow, someone needs to inhibit adenosine. And you'll make lots of friends that way.
Not really. You won't. <laughs> but that's exactly how caffeine works. So the other thing is called your circadian rhythm. And your circadian rhythm is like your sleep urge. And everyone has a circadian rhythm, all humans. And our circadian rhythm entrains our sleep and wake to the 24-hour solar day. And when we talk about what really entrains us to be awake during the day and feeling sleepy, you know, mainly at night. And the truth is we do feel sleepy twice during the day. You know, we do feel sleepy around noon and two o'clock, but we definitely feel sleepy at night is going to be the influence of light. So that's why you want to have lots of light in the morning. What's going to happen? It's going to inhibit something called melatonin from uh, being released. Then at nighttime, of course, you want to stay away from those bright lights so melatonin can be released. So at night, time, you can imagine circadian rhythm is making you sleepy, high levels of adenosine, the homeostatic drive is making you sleepy. So when those two things are aligned, what do you do? Yeah, you actually just fall asleep, hopefully. <laughs> so what is normal sleep in adults? Well, normal sleep is going to be divided into two broad stages, non-REM and REM. So we have a little diagram up here where we're looking at our sleep cycle, where we start off awake, then we go into non-REM, which is divided into three sub-stages, N1, N2, and N3, and stands for non-REM. So when they talk about deep sleep, what is going to be deep sleep? That's going to be N3 sleep, otherwise something we call delta sleep or slow wave sleep, you know? And then we have REM. And of course, REM's claim to fame is that you have these vivid HD TV-like dreams. Of course, you tend to be body tends to be paralyzed in REM, so you don't, you know, reenact your dreams. But this is going to be the normal sleep cycle for most individuals. And it's just amazing how, like, when we talk about um, technology and sleep and gadgets and sleep, there are so many things out there. And I remember that there was this um, app or that, you know, it's part of your cell phone, and it tells you that, hey, if you want to feel refreshed when you wake up in the morning, you don't want to wake up in the deep stage of sleep like N3. So if you put this phone under your pillow, it'll sense when you're in the lighter stage and wake you up from there. And sure, I mean, that sounds great, but look at this diagram up here. When do you have most of your deep sleep? It's kind of earlier in the night, you know, closer to the morning, we really don't have much deep sleep to begin with. So sure, I'm sure the app's going to guess correctly. Just like when we talk about REM sleep. You now notice earlier in the night, we don't have a lot of REM, but we have a lot of REM closer to the morning, which is why most of us, when we wake up, we wake up from a, that's right, like a vivid dream. So just mentioning that. So why is a sleep deprivation, you know, always going to be a hot topic? And why do uh People still want to do things like the all-nighter in college is because look at some of the, the phrases out there. You know what I mean? Uh, phrases like, I could sleep when I'm dead, or the early bird gets to worm, or one of the newer ones out there is kind of like, sleep is a poor substitute for caffeine. And the truth is, people wear their lack of sleep, their sleep sleep deprivation, kind of like this badge of courage over like, oh, I did the all-nighter. You know, and we definitely know that when we talk about how we function during the day, if you don't get the good quantity and quality sleep, that you're really not going to function well. So sleep is important for every single organ. Did I say that already? I know I did. But I just put a bunch of them out here to kind of like really do a little deeper dive and how does it affect certain parts. 
weight. You know what I mean? Of course, I mean, people are working hard during the day, they're taking extra steps, they're exercising, they're eating well. But if you get poor sleep at night, quantity and quality sleep, number one, dysregulation of important weight hormones. What hormones am I thinking about? I'm sure everyone's going to yell them out. Leptin and ghrelin, right? Leptin stands begins with the letter L. That's to lose weight. So when you're sleeping, you secrete more leptin. G stands for ghrelin. That stands for gain weight. And of course, when you're not sleeping, you gain more weight. And of course, with everything, there's always going to be kind of like the practical parts of it. When you're, you know, having insomnia and you're not sleeping and you go to the fridge at night, I'm pretty sure most people are not grabbing avion water and celery sticks. You know what I mean? I'm sure they're grabbing uh, other things like Doritos and Choco Tacos and I don't know. So, of course, and if you're sleep deprived in the morning, you're not feeling well, comfort food. So, you know, things that you will just add to poor weight control. Thinking clearly, you know what I mean? Uh, your attention, decision making, you know, so important whether you're a student or at work or an athlete to have these things. Improved memory means sleep and the aging, sleep and dementia. All these things are such hot topics. You know, immunity. I mean, right now, what is it? Is it the triple demic? Oh my God. You know, whether I'm here talking about COVID, you know, my little girl who's three years old, she got RSV this season, got it pretty bad. Influenza. I mean, of course, we all need a strong immune system. It's going to be so very important. You know, and just better health in general. You know what I mean? The American Heart Association made sleep one of the pillars of health, which I think is just awesome and amazing, you know, to encourage sleep in more people. But yes, you know what I mean? There are so many reasons why when you are not having good quantity and quality sleep that you could have high blood pressure, poorly controlled diabetes. One of the many hormones involved is cortisol. When you're stressed, high cortisol levels. What does cortisol do to the blood pressure? Cranks it up. What does it do to blood sugars? Makes them poorly controlled, you know what I mean? And diabetes, high blood pressure, huge risk factors when we talk about coronary artery disease. You know, less pain, of course, unfortunately, many people suffer from fibromyalgia. And what do we say? Get good sleep, easier said than done. You know, and of course, mood. And, you know, many of you folks take Jack's amazing, you know, psychiatry courses. And we know that sleep and depression and sleep and anxiety and medications, oh man, they're so highly related. So needless to say is that sleep is very, very individualized. So people always tell me, how much sleep do I need? And one of my answers are going to be, well, how old are you? And you don't need to tell me, it's okay. But of course, depending on your age, you know, you need different, uh, especially young people need lots of sleep. And sleep is just as important as you get older, but getting good sleep and as you get older is not easy. When you get older, you get less REM sleep, less deep sleep, which is already a bad thing, you know? So the big thing is avoiding something called the sleep debt. You know what I mean? So sleep debt happens where you're sleep deprived. So for someone my age, um, I need somewhere between seven to nine hours of sleep with the sweet spot being around eight. But let's say I get six hours of sleep one night, you know, I need to make up for it easier said than done. But let's say that carries on for a couple days. Next thing you know, I'm three hours in sleep debt, you're really not going to make it up. So it's really about prevention from it happening. Okay. And when do I really worry about how much sleep you're getting? 
beyond just, hey, uh, how old are you? Well, it depends how you're functioning during the day. So I might be a little more picky in someone who's not hitting exactly seven hours of sleep that's my age if they're really not functioning well during the day versus someone who just won a Golden Globe and a Pulitzer Prize and is getting a 4.0 GPA. I won't be as concerned. So daytime functioning really encourages uh, how aggressive you want to be when we talk about sleep and sleep disorders. So terminology, this all kind of goes in from this sleep debt. So social jet lag, you know, what does it mean? And I think simply put, and I was getting lots of interviews from people like CNN. Here's a big quote that I had about social jet lag. It just means that, hey, it's Friday night and you want to stay up and watch Netflix. You want to go out. You want to go to a bar. You want to go catch a movie, whatever it is. And why do we do this sometimes? Because it is Friday, you know, and you know, you have that buffer on Saturday morning. And maybe if you have energy, you know, there's many young people listening here, you know, I can't go out two nights in a row anymore. You know, uh, you do it also because you have Saturday and Sunday is the buffer, but then Monday happens. And what, ha and what happens there is that you do have to wake up to go to work or school on time and you're sleep deprived. So it's just like having jet lag. And of course, when we talk about social jet lag, you know, the answer is how do you prevent it? It's always about compromise, meaning that, you know, even talking about jet lag in itself, if, you know, I'm here in California, if I go to like Arizona or Colorado and I have a one hour jet lag, probably not going to be a big deal, right? But if I'm talking about going to New York and of course, overseas into Europe, that's a lot of jet lag. Same thing about social jet lag. You know, I'm not worried if you go out an extra hour, hour and a half, but if we're talking going out four or five in the morning, a couple of days in a row, of course, that's when you're really going to have the clinical effects of that. And another terminology that came up, you know, kind of paired up very closely to social jet lag is this. It's called revenge sleep procrastination. I didn't even make this term up. So um, many people wanted me to go on TV and talk about this. I did it a couple of times. And yeah, this is Anderson Cooper. And this was, I believe, last year, end of last year. And it was such a big treat, you know, being interviewed by Anderson Cooper. He is awesome. I just can't say enough about him. Anyways, we talked about revenge, sleep, procrastination, which is pretty much the same thing as social jet lag. And what did we talk about was that, you know, there are individuals who just really worked hard throughout the week, whether it be school or at work, whatever they're doing, being the best mom, being the best dad. And by the time they finish their duties, it's like 10 o'clock at night, you know? And so what do most people do around 10? I think most people go to bed and sleep, but there are individuals like, wait, wait a minute. I just worked my butt off all day. Can I just have some time for myself? So they take revenge upon sleep by procrastinating going to bed because they felt they earned it. And they did. They really did. So it's kind of like social jet lag with a different type of motivation of why you're going to stay up late. But the answer for this is that it's not wrong to want to stay up. I mean, if you worked hard all week, you definitely enjoyed uh, some time to yourself, to whatever you want to do. But, you know, I think that it also is compromise. You know what I mean? Instead of just staying up till four in the morning, you need to pick a better time, do something different, do something constructive. Maybe the treat could be in the morning instead of at night. So it's all about compromise. So whether you have social jet lag or <clears throat> revenge sleep procrastination, I mean, the bottom line point is you're going to have signs and symptoms of being sleep deprived. So 
What are going to be those signs and symptoms for yourself or for others? Well, one thing could be frequent napping. Now, I'll be the first to say I'm not a nap hater. I love a good nap. You know what I mean? But remember, a nap should be somewhere around, you know, somewhere in that 15 to 20 minutes, you know, 30 is kind of pushing it. But right around that, you know, that's a nap. And if you're going to do a power nap, well, a power nap to me means you're going to nap probably around noon to two o'clock when your circadian rhythm is making you sleepy and it's going to be like around that 15 to 20 plus minutes no longer than that okay and but if you're napping all the time that could be a sign sleep attacks are always gonna be you know when you're in that lecture and next thing you know you're doing like the head bob you know <laughs> hopefully no one just did it right now but that's gonna be a sleep attack Micro sleep, well, that literally is going to be a sleep attack and literally you are going to fall asleep. We're like, whoa, did I just fall asleep? And if you're taking notes like in a lecture and you want to have one of these sleep attacks in your writing, what happens when you fall asleep? You, you Sometimes you just keep on writing and you wake up and like, what did I just write there? And of course, the last thing is going to be something called a sleep start and sometimes we call those hypnic jerks but this sounds like we're kind of mean so sleep starts is kind of like the pc way of calling it and and i could demonstrate one now is basically you're just about to fall asleep that kind of electrical surge goes through your body like like this yeah you don't need to work these patients up for epilepsy or anything like that be nice it just means they're probably going to be like you know sleep deprived and you know these sleep starts hypnic jerks are very 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 common not surprising. Why? Because many people, unfortunately, have poor quality and quantity sleep. So, of course, you know, I know I have a bunch of healthcare professionals listening in today, but this could be for anyone, whether you're in the healthcare field or not, that being sleepy doesn't do good things when it comes to work, does it? Uh, you could be late quite often, stay home from work, fall asleep at work, you know, making errors. And, you know, these are these could be huge things, you know, um, and of course, getting injured. I'm trying to figure, figure, make it simple, but why aren't we sleeping? And I think that this slide could go on and on and on. But, you know, I just picked five things here that just kind of jumped to mind for this lecture in particular. Now I'm going to use this broad term, you know, poor sleep hygiene, you know. And when we talk about poor sleep hygiene, I think, you know, most people will say the room needs to be dark and quiet and cool. And the answer is, sure, why not? You know what I mean? But it could be as you know, sometimes simple as clock watching, you know what I mean? I don't keep that technology in bed, but if you're looking at that clock, that's something that could be a simple remedy that may give you a lot of benefits. So beware of clock watching, um, you know, of course, you know, um, watching TV. I know many people don't like watch TV anymore. I, I think they watch their Netflix on your phone. It's kind of nice to watch Netflix on the phone, you know? Um, and of course, you know, medications, be careful what meds you're taking, you know, especially when we talk about, you know, any of these antidepressants, anti-anxiety, antipsychotics, steroids, albuterol, you name it, they all could have effects on your sleep. You know, alcohol, I don't think it's a big secret. You know what I mean? If you drink a little too much alcohol before going to bed, it will knock you out. Don't get me wrong. But it's always that second half of the night. If you're not running to the bathroom because alcohol inhibits antidiuretic hormone, ADH, or because you're just, you know, having multiple rouses and awakening is not going to those deeper stages, you're not going to feel refreshed in the day. Nicotine is a stimulant. And of course, you know, untreated sleep disorders, multiple arousals, the wakings from obstructive sleep apnea, difficulty initiating sleep from restless leg syndrome. So you definitely want to make sure that we look into those things um, 
And when we talk about this uh, picture over here, you know, I kind of put this here to kind of gauge either how old I'm getting or how young the audience is, that this is a classic picture of a movie of someone really close to the TV screen with their hands on the TV. I just always ask, does anyone know what movie this is? And it's amazing, you know, that someone's going to insist that this movie is called The Ring. And I'm like, no, this is, you know, poltergeist, you know, but maybe I'm just showing my age over there. So speaking of watching shows and TV, uh, you know, one thing that will prevent you from sleeping is binge watching. Of course, there was a study that showed this in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. And it was interesting that Netflix CEO at the time stated that, uh, you know, Netflix's biggest competition is sleep. Wow. How about that? But of course, you know, some of the shows out there are just so addictive, you know what I mean, that it's, it's hard to turn it off. And I think there's only five seconds before the next show or the next segment comes on. So right now, my um, my nine year old loves this Wednesday. And every time I go into the uh, living room, this show is on and she keeps on watching this Wednesday dance. I'm getting kind of sick of it. So sorry. I, it's a great show. I like Tim Burton, but, <laughs> you know, I think I had enough of this. <laughs> Um, but what about technology? Is it uh, helping us or hurting us? You know, and I'm sure I see almost 30 participants today. This is pretty amazing. Someone's wearing one of these or someone has an aura ring. I just know it. And, you know, I think in broad strokes, I'm going to say that when it comes to technology and health or technology and sleep, you know, anything that's encouraging to get better sleep, anything that encourages to take more steps, I mean, I got to like it. And uh, a lot of my patients do wear a lot of these devices. These aura rings are pretty cool. You know, uh, I don't get paid a lot from USC. Oh, did I just say that? My bad. Uh, <laughs> just, yeah. But I can afford an aura ring, but they do really, really cool things. So, yes, I think, you know, monitoring sleep is very important. And I think it's really good for things like just getting your, your total sleep time. I think that's going to be, you know, very important, though it does many other things also. So, one of my favorite pet peeves is about, you know, getting the two cues to sleep, which are going to be the quantity and the quality. And Quantity is going to be similar to talking just about insomnia. You mean you're just not sleeping, your total sleep time will be decreased. Quality sleep is going to be if you are sleeping enough, but you just don't feel refreshed. Are you getting to those deeper stages like N3 or are you getting REM? You know, and if you're not, it's because you're having multiple arousals throughout the night. And I think of obstructive sleep apnea as, as being one of those classic examples. So insomnia, I think most of us want me to talk a little bit more about insomnia than OSA. So I just wanted to put more in there about insomnia. So the International Classifications of Sleep Disorders Edition 3 defines insomnia as difficulty initiating sleep or maintaining sleep. You've got to have adequate opportunity to sleep. And one of the most important things is how are you functioning during the day? That's going to be very important. You know, I'm not really as concerned for acute insomnia. We all have it. There's nothing wrong with that. But chronic insomnia is going to be something that we want to address. So, of course, when you ask me, well, what does it mean to be chronic? It's all about memorizing numbers. So if you have insomnia at least three times a week for three months, that is the ICSD-3 definition of chronic insomnia. So people always ask, well, why does so-and-so have insomnia, but I didn't get it or she got it and he didn't get it. So the answer is it's something called the 3P model. And I kind of like this quite a bit that we just don't know who is predisposed to having insomnia. So the first P is who's predisposed. And sometimes you don't know 
until you get an episode of insomnia. Then after you have your insomnia, well, you know, um, you, you, what's it called? Something precipitates it. So you have your predisposed to it, something precipitates it, which is kind of like uh, an event, like a, a life-changing event, a death, a wedding, something. And then what happens is the insomnia doesn't go away and you might start developing habits that make the insomnia worse, such as, well, you know, tonight I'm going to go to bed two hours earlier to get more sleep. You know what? I'm just going to take that drink of alcohol. I'm just, you know, all these things. And it perpetuates the insomnia. So who's predisposed, a precipitating event, and you do something to perpetuate it. That's kind of like the 3P model for insomnia. I wish we could, you know, find out who's predisposed to it, but we just don't know just yet. But of course, people who have unfortunately depression, anxiety, a lot of psychiatric conditions, family history, of course, that's going to be factored in there. So, you know, I want to spend some time on talking about how do we treat insomnia, you know, but, you know, before we dive into how do we treat it, I think the most important thing is, well, how do we diagnose it? You know, and I just wanted to say that as a question to everyone, do you need a sleep study to diagnose insomnia? And what is the answer? The answer is no, I really only get a sleep study when I want to diagnose one thing, which is, that's right obstructive sleep apnea. You know, that's when I really get a sleep study. How do I do diagnose insomnia? Well, you got to be patient. You know, you get a good history, you get a physical exam. I like getting a good, tell them to get some diaries and logs. You know, and you, sometimes we do something called actigraphy, which is, you know, an FDA approved product, kind of like similar to all these sleep monitoring watches and devices that tells you um, how long you were sleeping when you wake up. Uh, but yes, you know, we not everyone needs to have a sleep study uh, to diagnose insomnia. I only get a sleep study when I do suspect that someone could have obstructive sleep apnea. And remember, with obstructive sleep apnea, the multiple awakenings and arousals, just that part of it could kind of mimic, you know, sleep maintenance insomnia. So how do you how do we how do we treat insomnia? You know, I think the go to answer in, in most cases is always going to be cognitive behavioral therapy. So when we talk about that, cognition is going to be your thoughts, you know, and behaviors are going to be your actions, you know. And even though I, I put a lot of things on this slide, you know, obviously the two things I really, really, really focus on are going to be the bottom two over here, which is going to be. Well, stimulus control, which means the bed is only meant for one thing, which is going to be, you know, sleeping. And if you can't fall asleep within, you know, the first 15 to 20 minutes, try to easier said than done, leave the bed and do things that are non-stimulating in a dim light setting before going back to bed to sleep. Sleep restriction really means, hey, having a set bedtime and set wake time, even on a Friday night, even on holidays, even on vacation, easier said than done. So CBT is always going to be the mainstay therapy. I do it acutely. I do it chronically. I combine it with pharmacotherapy all the time. It's always, you know, pharmacotherapy and CBT put together. So I put this slide in here because, you know, it's easy for me to say, hey, just get some CBT. But, you know, not many, you know, um, healthcare professionals provide CBT. It's not easy to go to CBT. It's like six sessions for half an hour each session. And so many people have asked me about my opinion about apps and, you know, CBT in itself, you know, it's, it's going to be five key components, you know, sleep consolidation. We mentioned stimulus control already, 
cognitive restructuring your thinking, some generalized sleep hygiene and relaxation techniques. Now, let me just say it now, sleep hygiene by itself is not a treatment for insomnia. Sleep hygiene combined with CBT is definitely a therapy, but sleep hygiene itself doesn't treat insomnia. And to go back to my question, yes, I am a. I, I think you know a CBT apps are very helpful. There have been some studies that show that self-directed CBT can be very, very effective. And I'm not promoting one app versus another, but you know, I think that there are many of them out there, and I've had a good response from my patients, and it's worthwhile looking into if you don't have the time to, you know, be in person or scheduling appointments to do CBT. With that being said, I want to spend some time talking about pharmacotherapy. So as a generalized rule for pharmacotherapy that, you know, drugs really don't improve daytime performance in most cases, I'll say a few things during my spiel. And, you know, all sedative hypnotics are to be specific, to be more accurate, almost all the set of hypnotics are going to be on what's called the beers list. That's the American Geriatric Society. And of course, we worry about the elderly, we worry about falls. So that's why, you know, you got to be very careful with these set of hypnotics. So when I think of, you know, medications for sleep, you know, I actually will put them in different categories. I think the first category I think about is going to be herbal remedies, you know, and no matter which one we talk about over here, and we don't have time to talk about all of them, is that with the exception of melatonin, all of these have very limited evidence. You know, I think the question always is going to be what dose, what route, what time, you know, so whether you take magnesium or valerian root or tryptophan, you know, or ginseng, or I'd even put CBD in here. Many people are always popping these little CBD gummies all the time. You know, they're all going to have the same limitation. You know, melatonin is, you know, used quite commonly. It's really good about uh, shifting your circadian rhythm. My take-home message is that it's not about how much melatonin you take, but when do you take it? And for most individuals, I only really prescribe around three milligrams of pharmaceutical grade melatonin for what that's worth. But I really want to spend the most time on this slide. You know what I mean? So we have uh, herbal uh, medications. Then we have things like over-the-counter prescription sleep aids and sleep aids uh, that are not FDA approved for sleep, but people use them for sleep. When we talk about over-the-counter uh, sleep aids, I think the big one is diphenhydramine. And remember, that's FDA approved for over-the-counter. But of course, right now, there's so much data that if you take chronic diphenhydramine, it could add to dementia. Why? It's not the antihistamine. There's anticholinergic effect, which means that in dementia, in our brains, we have the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. If you have anticholinergic effect, you're blocking acetylcholine. That's why there's an association with diphenhydramine and its chronic use in dementia. So when we talk about non-FDA-approved medications that people use for sleep, the big one is always trazodone over here. Many people are taking that Seroquel at that 25 or 50 milligram dose at night. Um, so there are other medications that people are just taking because the side effect is, you know, sleep. But then we have the last category that I want to spend some time with, which are going to be the FDA-approved medications for sleep, for which there are five of them. And what are these five categories of medications? Benzodiazepines, most of them, you know, the second one are the 
non-benzodiazepine receptor agonists, like those Z drugs, like Zolpidem, like Sonata, like Lunesta, like Ambien, you know. Um, the third category are these um, melatonin um, agonists, like I put one up here, which is like Rosarum. The fourth category are going to be things that are the have antihistamine, but they are in the uh, prescription FDA approved. The big one here is doxepin, which is the generic name that many people have used for um, as a TCA for for antidepression. But the brand name is Silnor. They got FDA approval with a much lower dose, three and six milligrams, and that actually um, has not been associated with dementia. It's good for chronic use. And then the last thing I want to mention when it comes to medications for sleep that are prescription are going to be these DORAs. So it's going to be the, the probably the, I want to say newest, but they've been out for a while. But DORAs are going to be, you know, it is a category of first time medication for insomnia because it stands for dual orexin receptor antagonist. And orexin is actually a neurotransmitter that's going to be alerting in nature. And it doesn't seem to be involved with other the classic neurotransmitters like a GABA, like a histamine. So it, it's going to be strictly its function to be mainly for sleep. And I put a lot of brand names over here. When we talk about these doors, the first one that came out, came out with the brand name Belsamra. Then there's the Vigo. And one of the newer ones is Qvivic. And, you know, when I talked about daytime functioning, you know, Qvivic of these, not to say the other ones can't have better functioning during the day, they did studies actually doing questionnaires to see people who take this medication at night, how are they functioning during the day? And they had a subjective questionnaire. So when it got its FDA approval, it actually got some approval for daytime functioning and improvement in daytime functioning. But the DORAs as a whole, I think are gonna be underutilized. And it's probably because they're not cheap. It's probably because they're expensive, but this is gonna be a, a, a good category of medication that can be combined with CBT. So let me make sure I don't speed up a little bit, but you know, what are some of my favorite sleep hacks? You know, I think a very important part of sleep is always going to be breathing relaxation techniques. You know, I think many people who have these, you know, devices like a aura ring or uh, one of these watches that do all these, that gives you all these readings, heart rate variability is such a big topic. And of course, the key thing is having a higher heart rate variability, which means that your parasympathetic system is kicking in. And if your parasympathetic system is kicking in, your heart rate's gonna slow down. And when your heart rate slows down, that means you're gonna have more variability between the beats. So when you do all these monitoring, they may talk about heart rate variability as a, as a big outcome. And probably all last year, I couldn't tell you how many interviews I had to do about people taping their mouth. I mean, whether it be TikTok or I, I was on Good Morning America for this, um, that let me just say this. I'm always a big believer about breathing through the nose. You know, I think breathing through the nose, it definitely filters out dust and allergens, you know, not because of these big nose hairs I have, but <laughs> because of tiny hairs called cilia. It humidifies the air, which is nice. You know, uh, there are some data about helping out with your blood pressure because breathing through the nose may increase a little nitric oxide, but it's really nasal breathing in through the nose, out to the mouth, really is combined with many relaxation techniques and meditation and yoga. So I think they're all great about breathing through the, uh, breathing through the nose. 
If you breathe through the mouth, of course, you'll get a dry mouth in the morning. You could have halitosis, which is bad breath, gum irritation, and of course, snoring. So I love nasal breathing, but is mouth taping better for sleep? I'm sorry. Putting a tape over your mouth is not going to give you more quantity sleep or quality sleep. Uh, does it stop snoring? Well, you better make sure it's not obstructive sleep apnea. I'll tell you that. And you better make sure before you tape your mouth, you don't have any nasal polyps or a septal deviation. That won't be good. You know? So uh, unfortunately, I'm not a big fan of, of mouth taping. Uh, other sleep hacks that, you know, of 2022, sleeping with pets. I own a dog. You know, the data is a little different now. Of course, it depends what size dog. How old are you? Does all these things factor in? And I assume when we see pets, we mean dogs, you know. But, you know, there is data out there, whether it be for anxiety or comfort or companionship, it can help out. The middle one, you know, there's, I'm sure many of you have heard about drinking uh, warm milk before bed. Milk definitely contains tryptophan. And my spin on that is going to be maybe some warm almond milk. You know why? Almond milk definitely contains tryptophan and some magnesium. Why do we warm it up? So it'd be a little easier on the stomach. And why almond milk and not regular milk? Well, some people are lactose intolerant, you know, so I'm going to go with the warm almond milk and I'm sticking to it as something that might help you with sleep um, as one of those uh, sleep hygiene things, you know. How about a warm bath or warm shower? Well, the science behind it is when you lay down, your body cools down. When you get up, you warm up. So by taking a warm bath or a warm shower, you're going to have a, a steeper drop in your temperature and that drop in temperature you know, along with other things may help you sleep. But, you know, to speak about meds, of course, a lot of people, you have to raise your hand, takes magnesium. I'm a big believer that you only need the recommended daily allowance. I'm a big believer that you could get magnesium just by choosing your foods a little bit better, uh, leafy green vegetables and almonds and yogurt. But of course, some people are truly deficient, whether because of malabsorption or whatever. And of course, they may benefit from it. You got to be careful. You too much magnesium uh, will give you some diarrhea <laughs> and way too much magnesium will definitely give you some arrhythmias. And the mechanism of action that, you know, magnesium helps maintain GABA, which is going to be a, a neurotransmitter that helps out with sleep. And of course, magnesium has some anti-anxiety and muscle relaxation effect. Other sleep hacks out there, you know, I'll focus on this blanket up here. You know, I'm a big fan of a sound machine. I know my kids have one in their room. They like a, a river or some waves crashing on the beach at night to drown out background noise, which is great. You know, uh, when they talk about weighted blankets, you know, I was going to give you a whole spiel on weighted blankets, but a couple of weeks before this presentation, I saw this in the news. Children die from weighted blankets, so I'm going to hold back a little bit on that. And I know it's only two deaths, and the thing that got me, in, now I seem like a mean person, two is too much. But it states that you, you, these were kids, these were four-year-olds. You shouldn't be, you know, oh, this gets me so frustrated because I have a three-year-old. But these are heavy blankets. It's kind of like when you go to the dentist and you have like a heavy, you know, that apron that they sit on your chest when you take x-rays. So, and sometimes they open up, they have pellets and glass beads inside. So of course you can choke on it. You can, asphyxiation can happen. So I just wanted to mention this because you gotta be careful because you know, weighted blankets are not for everyone. 
Now, this is my favorite one that came up. And, you know, um, I did this a month ago or so about don't always blame the turkey of why I'm sleepy after Thanksgiving. And I, I kind of chuckled to myself when I saw this. And um, it's not only the trip to the fan. I thought that, you know, remember, there's a lot of side dishes in there. So whether it's the pecan pie or the the great potato dishes, it has lots of carbohydrates. And what's interesting when you have eats lots of carbohydrates, of course, insulin levels are going to increase. And when insulin levels increase, it takes up the tryptophan in the brain. And remember that tryptophan is an essential amino acid, meaning that we don't make it ourselves, that you need to take it through dietary supplement. And tryptophan produces serotonin or, you know, and serotonin, it plays a big role in mood. And it goes on to make melatonin, of course, melatonin in sleep. Uh, but other reasons besides you know, in the high amount of carbohydrates we tend to eat. I'm sure someone had some alcohol. There's travel fatigue. And of course, quantity. How much are you eating? And I kind of like the science behind this, that when you eat too much, increased blood flow goes to the gut, goes to the intestines, and it kind of decreases blood flow going through the CNS. And only about 10% of cardiac output goes to the CNS. And you can imagine that's maybe why we're a little bit you know, tired and lethargic after a really super big meal. So it, it really isn't just a turkey. So with my remaining time, I wanted to say a few things about sleep apnea. And why did I say this is because, you know, when I'm doing tons of interviews and stuff that, you know, they always refer to it as just sleep apnea. And I want to be a little more specific that most of the time they're implying obstructive sleep apnea, but I want people to know there are two types. There's obstructive, the most common, then there's central sleep apnea. And central sleep apnea is like, you know, your brain's not signaling you to, to breathe. And here on the bottom, you can imagine there's no effort to breathe, so there's no airflow. Versus the class of obstructive sleep apnea where you're making lots of effort to breathe, but there was an obstruction where not here in the good, it's up here in the upper airway, okay? So there is a difference, and by far, obstructive sleep apnea, the most common, 30-plus million people in the United States have obstructive sleep apnea, unfortunately. But for central sleep apnea, how do I put them into a teachable category? You know, I put them based upon your carbon dioxide level, your CO2 level. So people who are hypercapnic, meaning they have high CO2 levels during the day, what can give central sleep apnea? You could have neuromuscular disorders such as ALS, known as Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, you know, different types of muscular dystrophy, or you could be on opioids, you know, and opioids kind of work on the mu receptors in your brain, and you get a special type of central sleep apnea known as periodic breathing. Sometimes we call it ataxic, ataxic breathing. Sometimes we call it biots breathing, B-I-O-T-S breathing. And when we talk about people on chronic opioids, it really depends on how much you're taking. And kind of an interesting tidbit for everyone, people who have a low or normal body mass index are going to be at a higher risk of uh, getting this central sleep apnea. Um, the other type is gonna be people who have a normal CO2 during the day or a lower CO2 during the day. What will cause this? People who tend to like the hyperventilate at night. You know, the big one I wanted to mention are people with heart failure. They had this special breathing pattern called Sheen Stokes respiration. People who live at very, very high altitudes because of the low oxygen levels, they may be a little, you know, uh, hyperventilating. And of course, sometimes you don't know what caused it. And, you know, we use the word primary or idiopathic central sleep apnea. 
But I do want to say in broad strokes that the treatment for central sleep apnea is not standardized. It's always treat, treat, treat the underlying cause, treat the heart failure per se. You know, uh, we try CPAP sometimes, not because it's going to work, because remember, they're not even initiating the breath, but sometimes they have undiagnosed obstructive apneas. Sometimes we'll give supplemental oxygen to stabilize the oxygen level so they won't stop breathing. But the key thing is that if you use a bi-level device, you definitely want to use a backup rate because you're not initiating the breaths. And one type of bi-level device is called an ASV, adaptive servo ventilation. And not to get super too detailed in the sleep medicine, there you don't want to use this as, uh, for someone with central sleep apnea, especially with CHF and Sheen-Stokes respiration. But some studies have shown you're going to get really, really bad outcomes. Um, but remember, the part of this talks about devices. You know, one device out there to treat central sleep apnea, as scary as it may be, is called the phrenic nerve stimulator. Last. Last time I gave this talk, people were asking, what do you mean? Can you dive into it a little deeper? Sure. With my remaining time, I'm going to dive into that a little bit. So um, when we talk about the, it's called the remedy system, and it's a device. And what do you do is that it gets implanted underneath the skin. And there's going to be a lead that they kind of go through the cardiophrenic vein, and that will lead and it will go down to the diaphragm and kind of uh, stimulate the phrenic nerve. So, of course, when you're stimulating the phrenic nerve, it activates the diaphragm. Even though the lead is only going to be going towards the uh, left diaphragm, that it actually will activate both diaphragms to breathe. And its claim to fame is that treatment starts and stops on its own. How crazy is that? And you don't have to wear anything or you don't need to start anything. And people ask me, well, how does that happen? Well, the device, when they place it in you, it senses your position. I'm not joking. And if you're moving and based upon your incline or laying down and not moving, it will just start on its own and stop on its own. Well, figure. And you don't need to fail CPAP. And that's a big thing. So if you have central sleep apnea, you don't need to fail a device to use this. And I'd put a little, you know, uh, a little sh shot down here of someone's breathing with central sleep apnea. They have these moments of apnea, moments of apnea. When they're on the device, you don't get these apneic episodes. So, you know, choose your patients wisely. Who puts them in? Interventional cardiology, they team up with me for them. So with my remaining time left, and it's amazing how fast this went. It's blowing my mind. <laughs> so is then we're going to talk about obstructive sleep apnea. And I think all many of us... Um, know about OSA, you know, that when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea, that it, it, it definitely can have results to have many manifestations in almost any organ in the body. You could be at a higher risk for heart disease and stroke. You could have atrial fibrillation, poorly controlled atrial fibrillation. It uh, has outcomes to result in higher, more weight gain and obesity, Alzheimer's disease. And of course, you're going to be very tired, poor quality sleep, increased risk of motor vehicle accidents. So all these things are going to be things that we worry about in someone who has untreated obstructive sleep apnea. So this is the slide that I kind of breezed through last time that people want me to spend more time with. So I'm going to do it because we are uh, close and nearing the end. So if you make the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, well, people always wonder, will I look like Darth Vader? And is that always going to be the first step? So yes, in <laughs> not that you're going to look like Darth Vader, but in most cases, you may have to fail CPAP before you take the second step. So of course, when we talk about obstructive sleep apnea, 
you have to take in consideration comorbidities. You got to make sure the patient's involved with the decision making to want to be treated. Why did you get sent for the study? Is it mild? Is it moderate? Is it severe? But I wanted to say that in in many cases you may have to fail, you know, CPAP first. Now, right now, I don't know if, if everyone's aware, you know, even if you get the diagnosis of obstructive sleep apnea, it's not easy to get the device. And you know. Um, Respironics, Philips Respironics, you know, had a recall on their on their machines. You know, I don't want to get too into it. But there was a problem with the filtering, and because of that, there's really only one other really big major CPAP producer, which is going to be ResMed. And there was, you know, now there was a time when I wanted to get my patients a CPAP device. It took three months, maybe four months. And, you know, things are slowly getting better, but it was really, really hard. So, you know, I say get a CPAP. It's not that easy to get a CPAP nowadays, you know, but what are going to be some other options out there? So when I, last time I said Inspire, and I just kind of moved on, but, you know, Inspire has a lot of commercials and I can't tell you how many people are asking me, is it just a device? I just kind of like press it and it treats my sleep apnea? I'm like, not really. So remember, this is about talking about new devices. This is the device for obstructive sleep apnea. And once again, this is going to be an implantable device, you know, so what did we just talk about? An implantable device for central sleep apnea. Now we have an implantable device for obstructive sleep apnea. It got FDA approval in 2014. And it's a hypoglossal nerve stimulator. So it stimulates your tongue. So how do you get this? Well, you know what I mean? Um, number one, it's for 18 years of age and older. It's for moderate to severe OSA. You definitely have to fail CPAP first before the insurance is going to cover that. Your BMI has to be less than 32. So many people who are interested may not make the BMI cutoff. And you need to do something called DICE. And that's called drug-induced um, sleep endoscopy. So what is that? So, you know, when we talk about doing surgery for obstructive sleep apnea, you know, it's not a surprise that one surgery doesn't treat all sleep apnea because you could have collapse in different areas. And so if you look, it could be up here in the vellum, the oropharynx, the tongue, the epiglottis. So what is sleep endoscopy is basically uh, they make you sleep. You make an appointment. How do they make you sleep? Well, they may give you medications like midazolam or propofol. And when you're sleeping, they'll take the scope and they'll look at to see where the collapse is. So where do, when we think about the Inspire device, of course, we're thinking about where the tongue is because it's stimulating the tongue from going forward. And if this is where your collapse is, then you may be a candidate. And when you collapse, there's different types of collapse. There's a lateral collapse, which you probably don't want to put a, you know, a, um, a, a uh, Inspire device in because that would be more of like a tonsillar collapse. You don't want to do a concentric collapse. You really want to look for what they call an AP collapse in the tongue. So you need to do the dice to see if you are going to have meet the criteria to get the Inspire device. You know, with the limited time I have, it's, you know, it's, you know, after you have the, the uh, Inspire uh, implanted in you, um, that we have to turn on the device, it gets titrated, you have to get used to it, choose your patients well, make sure that there's not underlying insomnia in these patients. But, you know, I think that when it comes to devices, that there's always going to be by choosing the right patients, someone will benefit from it. But a lot of questions that I think when you watch these commercials is not as simple just holding one of these remote controls.
And the last thing I'm going to say, because it's amazing, I only have two minutes left, um, is something called the Excite. And I kind of breezed over that last time and I got a lot of questions about it. So number one, I love these names. Here's the Inspire and the Excite. I think these commercials are trying to make you happy when you think about treating OSA. So the claim to fame for the Excite is that you're treating the obstructive sleep apnea during the day, during the day. So let me show you the slide about it. So <clears throat> for what it's worth, when you, when you go to the website, it's FDA authorized, and it's for a treatment for a daytime mild OSA. What was the first one for? It was moderate and severe. When we talk about the Inspire, this is just mild or for people who snore, you know? So what happens is, and I love the pictures they put over here. He looks way too happy. He's on his iPad playing with his phone. Uh, but you put this device in your mouth, just like he's doing over there, and you do it during the day. So for the first six weeks, you do a 20-minute sessions once a day. Then after six weeks, you do 20-minute sessions twice a week. And, you know, their studies have shown improvement for people with mild OSA. The hard part right now is that it's definitely not covered by insurance, and this thing is not cheap. And if you write down you're doing it for snoring, I almost can guarantee you'll never get this. Uh, but it is kind of nice, and I hate to say that it is exciting, <laughs> that there is something that we could uh, help out from mild sleep apnea during the day where it's not going to be looking like Darth Vader or getting an implantable device. So, you know, with that being said, I look at my timing. It's 4.59. Um, let me give you my summary slide. And I think, you know, sleep is a priority. Make sleep a priority. What happens during the day um, affects the night. And what happens at night definitely affects during the day, you know. For insomnia, DORA's direct uh, um, dual orexin receptor antagonists are a first-line, you know, FDA-approved medication for chronic insomnia to be combined with CBTI. And there are new therapies for both uh, central and obstructive sleep apnea that we talked about. And if you have any further questions about that, definitely ask your healthcare provider or, you know, uh, I'll be happy. I hope one day I could see you in some kind of convention. But let me give you my thank you slide. Uh, if you want to learn more about me, um, here are going to be my, my social media handles. I always love to, I put up interesting posts and articles and teaching and medicine uh, all over Instagram and my Facebook and my have. And of course, please check out my podcast. I have my Dr. Raj podcast that comes out every two weeks and it's all about wellness and happiness. And if you just want medicine and nothing but medicine, uh, my Beyond the Pearls podcast, we talk about psych and OB and surgery and peds. Uh, so please check those out. And I hope you enjoyed this update and I wish everyone the best 2023 coming up. Raj, thank you. Thanks again. And, and everyone joining us, thank you so much. Take care and a happy 2023. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.